welcome to the Untapped Philanthropy Podcast. I'm your host and Flux co-founder, Corinne Mitchell. I've spent my career exploring technology's role and amplifying impact within our social sector, and more specifically, helping funders to learn to leverage technology and data to connect and better serve our collective causes, constituents, and communities. In this podcast series, my team and I will profile social sector leaders, public figures, philanthropists, and industry futurists to explore this fascinating intersection of funding, technology, and policy. We're here to analyze the most critical and formative topics and trends that shape philanthropy both today and tomorrow. We hope this series leaves you inspired to think and act through a more collective and visionary lens. This week, we welcome an incredible thought leader who has spent the last 20 years deeply analyzing philanthropy, studying what makes the industry, its funders, its nonprofits tick. I have a feeling that all the listeners here will really benefit from the insights of the Bridgespan Group's managing partner, William Foster. The Bridgespan Group is a leading social impact consultancy that advises nonprofits, NGOs, philanthropists, investors, all in the different veins of what they do and where their investments go out into the community. And today, we're really excited to have William dive into the wild world of endowments. William, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. And for those people that may not be familiar with your work or Bridgman, I'd love to kind of hear a little bit about the history of, of really what where you came from and, and the journey you've been on. So a little bit about yourself in your own words. I'd love to hear more. Sure, happy to. Um, it, it, it really, for me, was an accidental journey. Um, I didn't set out in my career thinking I would dedicate myself to philanthropy or, or, or the social sector in any way. I was actually at Bain & Company, a uh, management consulting firm, but found myself constantly drawn to, uh, to civil society projects. I helped start the first charter school in Silicon Valley um, and uh, worked with a sort of micro-enterprise organization in East Palo Alto and constantly felt myself drawn to this and then actually got, this will date me, but I got a voicemail on the on the, the sort of company system talking about when Bridgespan was getting started, which was back in 2001. And, um, and a year later, found myself over at Bridgespan on a you know, small office with, you know, 15 or 20 people above the Hard Rock Cafe in Boston. And in the 20 years since then, we've, you know, really dedicated ourselves to working with some of the most impact-oriented and ambitious philanthropists and nonprofit leaders. Our work is about 50-50 between sort of doers and donors. And uh, and have now built, uh, you know, a firm that is in the the sort of fortunate position of getting to help people with with some of the, you know, the absolute uh, sort of most energizing and dynamic efforts to um, to make the world a better place. I love it. Actually, I have a similar background to you. I, I grew up in the Silicon Valley and sort of, and in, 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 you know, from a for-profit realm decided, you know, I'd rather, if I'm going to be working as hard as I am, I'd rather be doing it for something I really care about. So I, I, I hear your calling very clearly because it's something that I think, you know, I found similar inspiration from. So I love that you actually took that into the Bridgespan group and, and, and very familiar with your guys' practices. So in that, and as you're looking at that journey in the early days of analyzing the industry and getting started, you know, what are the types of ways that you have felt, you know, philanthropy's journey, if you will, of being more strategic? How has that sort of manifested over the early days to now? Like a little bit of history on, on where, where that's evolving. 
I think that, you know, one of the really remarkable observations is that there is a big arc of change that is very much still playing out about philanthropy's journey from being, say, charitable to being philanthropic, from thinking about the, the, the actions of the donor, the sort of moral qualities, the, the, the things one would aspire to in goodness and a donor behavior, uh, to what actually can change and make an enduring difference on some of the sort of toughest social problems we have. And, and when Bridgespan was getting started 20 years ago, that was very much, uh, a shift that was taking place. And I'll share, uh, you know, a story on that. Um, but it's a super tricky and complex question of how does a, a donor with all of these resources and assets and power actually position itself to help civil society organizations, nonprofit players in the most powerful way. And, and we're certainly learning a lot about that. But but that shift is sort of part and parcel of Bridgespan coming into existence. You know, our very first client was the Edna McConnell Clark Foundation, which some of your listeners may know and now has transformed into Blue Meridian Partners. But when we first started working with them, they had the the sort of somewhat revolutionary idea of giving large, unrestricted grants to nonprofit leaders to fund their own plans and aspirations, which is something we, you know, that was was a little bit of a, of a shift at that time. It's something we Bridgespan very much believe in. But when we started working with them, they said, let's get the business plans of, of nonprofits and really evaluate them and pick some that we fund. And they found that there weren't business plans to check out, right? That the nonprofits that they were interested in simply didn't have them. And so the first kind of work that Bridgespan found itself doing was working with nonprofits, helping them develop their own plans. And in the case of the Adam McConnell Clark Foundation, they funded that. And, uh, and then helping them get funded for their own ideas and strategies, which really is moving the center of gravity to the nonprofit. I love that because, you know, when you think about, you know, we all talk about the impact and the change and the things we need to be doing. Oftentimes funding the organization's capacity up front is the thing that people forget about. You know, it's, it's that idea that, you know, things like to help nonprofits become what we want them to be. We have to invest in digital infrastructure, strategy, things of that nature. So I think that's one of those things that before you can even talk about impact, you have to be able to get the very basic things in place to help them be in, be in a position to scale their vision from one story to 10,000, you know? So it's a very interesting concept that Bridgespan came in with. And I think, like you said, coming in from that that change of power, the nonprofit side, helping them to really build that resiliency is really critical. And look, you know, you can over-rotate, right? Like some of the quest for strategy can, can you know, put diligence demands that are onerous, you know, places where, you know, what a private equity firm might look at in a multi-billion dollar acquisition just simply doesn't translate to what a community-based organization is doing. So for sure, for sure, you can over-rotate. And at times, I think Bridgespan's probably driven some of that. But, but you know, the fundamental notion of really saying it's not about me, the donor, but it's about the change agents in the world and supporting the capacity building, as you say, um, for them to pursue their ideas is uh, it, it's sort of an unnatural act, right? It, it requires right. a certain sense of humility. But I think that's the trans—that's the multi-decade transformation we're in for donors to really be thinking about their philanthropy from a how do we put the center of gravity outside of ourselves in ways with the change makers who are going to change the world and do that well, which is yeah. not easy. 
Yeah. And that's interesting. So when we talk about the big things that are shaking up, you know, the philanthropic ecosystem people, you know, it's crypto and it's all these things. And, and to that degree, the, some of the most interesting things are actually the things people can do with endowments, which sound like the least, you know, sort of, um, or sometimes you would, would describe it as sort of thinking them as stodgy or old or legacy, but there's so much power that we have in the ability to rethink our take on how endowments can be used and how they can really help to that point you made build capacity structure and things of that nature. So I'd love to kind of hear you talk about that transition of that current philosophy moving towards how endowments can evolve and these processes can evolve and shake things up a bit. Yeah. I mean, look, I am energized about endowments, which may make me a little bit of a a bizarre person. I love it. I love it too. I think it's the most interesting way to to build some serious change in the industry. So I'm, I'm all with you. And, you know, it's funny, you use the word stodgy, um, and I and I use that as well, because I think endowments are really a sort of a stodgy tool for a radical purpose. Um, Ooh, they've like been it. around forever. <laughs> you like that? <laughs> I do. I love it. It makes it sound very sexy all of a sudden, from stodgy <laughs> well, to sexy overnight. <laughs> but, I mean, it's kind of true, right? So, like, the stodgy part, obviously, they've been around forever. You think about endowments as as, as something that happens with kind of the biggest, most established organizations, universities, art museums, medical research, whatever, and, you know, the data bear that out. But it's radical because there is nothing more sort of clean and complete in the sort of trust-based philanthropy world than creating endowments, right? It's the ultimate shift of, you know, to the extent that dollars and assets are power, it is a shift of power from donor to doer that's complete. And when we think about you know, if you think about what organizations like Harvard University have meant for sort of academic research and and higher education or groups like the, you know, like MoMA are to the art world, imagine a world in which on the toughest multi-decade long problems, whether it's racial injustice or economic mobility or democracy, if we had institutions that were as sort of resourced and long-term in their thinking and ability to build teams, right. you know, working on those problems, it's really radical. And, and, it's what, and, and, and it's what it's what civil society, particularly in an American context, can aspire to. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you've written extensively about some of these places where true change has been able to occur because of these endowments and the deployment of that money for, say, social change, especially in like Black-led organizations. For people unfamiliar with that, do you want to share some examples of where you've seen this really hit home, how the funds can be used in the endowment and, and how that sort of manifests in the communities? You know, well, for, first I'll start with the gap, unfortunately, right? Because they're, 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 because because the gap is the most pronounced. So there are very few endowments deployed for social change organizations, and there are very few endowments deployed for Black-led organizations. Um, you know, so to you know, to, to name a statistic, if you take some of the most well-regarded organizations in the, in the social sector that are, that are Black-led, think about the NAACP, um, Community Change, the Equal Justice in- Initiative. As of 2018, the sum total endowments for those organizations was zero. And, and when we did further research to look and we sort of you know, really how frequently are endowments deployed, there's sort of two other statistics that really jumped out to us. One was if you look at 
gifts of $10 million or above. When those gifts flow to institutions like universities and medical research, the dominant, the predominant form is endowments. When you look at them that flow to social change organizations, fewer than 5% went to endowments. And when you then take a look at sort of the, you know, racial, um, the, the leadership of these organizations by race, organizations, we built a sort of 56 nonprofit sample of comparable white-led and black-led organizations, uh, uh, you know, the ACLU, the Anti-Defamation League, the, you know, the NAACP, when you sort of look at this, on average, the black-led organizations had endowments that were one quarter the size and derived half as much of their sort of annual operating budget from the return. So there's this huge gaps between institutions and, uh, in, in, in some fields and, and kind of social change organizations, there's a huge gap between white and black-led organizations. And, and most of these problems are amorphous, multi-decade problems. So I guess the first place I'd start is the gap, you know, which is just enormous. When I look at an organization that, you know, that's been able to, to, to actually build an endowment and the powerful effects it has, one of them is the Harlem Children's Zone working in, in New York City that has built a quasi-endowment. I don't know if that's its sort of legal structure, but they are doing work in a very sort of targeted area of Harlem to, to sort of close the gap between the outcomes of children in those, in those, in that neighborhood and those neighborhoods as they've defined them. Right. And, and sort of middle-class achievement. And it's not government-backed. It's not government-funded. It's multifaceted in what they have to do. And you know, they have a, a, found, a, a sort of leader, Jeff Canada, who led them in this dramatic shift over multiple decades and have been able to build an endowment to support and supplement their work. And it just allows them to have a sort of multi-decade perspective in which they are not hamstrung um, programmatically by you know, what can attract, you know, restricted funding at that moment at that time. And it's, it's pretty amazing. And as you kind of go through these, these experiences, these stories, and you're working with folks, is there, are there any rather examples that, I don't know, that have shocked you, good, bad, um, just things that have been really captured as, as interesting ways that maybe things have evolved that you didn't expect beyond obviously the intended structure of starting to build capacity and structure for these, these folks. Yeah. I mean, you know, to me, I would say, you know, the most shocking thing is this sort of you know, this, this vicious cycle of resourcing, of, of, of sort of lack of resources pre- preventing the sort of accrual additional resources. You know, I w- was working with, with a donor once who was contemplating a very significant gift to, you know, a smaller kind of community-based nonprofit, and, and they didn't have a CFO. They didn't have a chief financial officer. They didn't have a full-time person on the finance team. And there was this massive kind of, you know, hesitation of like, gosh, well, you know, who can we write this check to? Like, what are they going to do with it? Who's going to invest it? Where are they going to cash it? And, 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 and on the one hand, that's a genuine concern. On the other hand, that concern is entirely solvable by actually having resources. There's plenty of people you can hire and work with to invest and manage your money. But it, the contrast is so large with kind of major universities where, you know, if you walk in, there's an extraordinarily professional investment te- team and financial staff, and they have a, a you know, a drawer of, 20 different big ideas in which to use the money. And, and it's, it, it's sort of, you know, it's this vicious cycle. But, but I do think that when you look at, you know, whether it's an example of, you know, a Black-led organization like Harlem Children's Zone or, um, uh, you know, or, 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 or an organization like the Anti-Defamation League, which works on 
you know, fighting bigotry broadly and also anti-Semitism in particular, you know, it just, it is transformative to those organizations to, to, to have the kind of resources, the talent they attract, the, 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 the long game they can play is just radically different. So let's play that out. We live in a world now, let's pretend where funders actually endow nonprofits the same way they do universities, hospitals, museums. In that capacity, you know, what does that really look like for a nonprofit that would sort of come into that level of, of um, to your point, support and, and capacity building, all the things that come forward? Paint that picture for me a little bit about how that would play out. Well, you know, on the nonprofit side, you would see several things. You would see growth in the number of team members. You would see um, uh, compensation levels that can attract, uh, you know, can attract, you know, staff that are needed. And you could see the nonprofit being willing to, um, to invest in, in the programmatic work in their communities, in the advocacy work in the broader field at simply sort of a, you know, a stepped up level. And right now, a lot of nonprofit CEOs spend 50% or more of their time raising money. Team members' programs are, um, are, are skewed to, you know, which particular substream of funding sources can work. And if a nonprofit could get 20%, 30% of its, of its revenue from an investment, from an investment stream out of an endowment that they themselves control, it all, you know, it all changes. So, so there's this massive difference between getting less than 10% of your money unrestricted to getting more than 10% that just simply unleashes. Right. Um, and, and when you take a sort of, if you lift beyond the single nonprofit and, and take a look at civil society, you know, one of the incredible things about civil society in America is how much creativity and energy comes not from, say, you know, a government official with expertise in a particular bureaucratic position, but from this crazy, you know, stew of radical and refining leaders. And, and in that world, for all kinds of idiosyncratic reasons and a bunch of, of I think, um, misconceptions, the bulk of, of, of money goes to, to kind of places in the arts and medical research and universities we've talked about. But imagine if we had the equivalent in democracy, in climate change, in economic mobility, with, you know, with a sort of diverse mix of leaders, black, white, etc. You know, our civil society, the landscape could look very different. And there's money sitting on the sidelines. It's not like people don't want to give away more money. They do. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because when you think about even on the the nonprofits themselves, just the pure back office costs that go into managing these 15K grants that come in and the reports and all the things that we all know are desperately inefficient and need to change. But this is sort of that that game changer that really does mobilize funds and let them do what they want to do, which is manage the programs, get that impact out to the community. So I, I think it is just such a powerful way to kind of see how it can really evolve the way that our nonprofits get to work. Um, and in that, I guess my, my next question is really just saying, you know, as you see this process change, what are the big things that you would say are, I don't know, broken that need to be fixed or that where do you see that ev- evolution needing to occur so that, you know, we can get to this next step where people are utilizing their, their endowments more? What, what is the block that oftentimes they run into that needs to be moved? Yeah. And, and, and I, I would say sort of the main blocks are ones of, 
of sort of thinking and imagination. And it really applies to both the donors and the doers, right? We don't, the, there are a set of, of misperceptions, and I'll name a, a couple, that have donors think that it's not a responsible thing, uh, a judicious thing to give endowments to, to organizations that are not already very well established. And similarly, a lot of organizations that are working in community on the toughest kinds of problems, particularly those led by BIPOC leaders, you know, Black, Latinx, et cetera, simply don't ask. So it's not like we have a world in which nonprofit leaders are asking for endowment raises all over the place and getting told no. It's just simply not in the conversation. And, you know, one of the major um, misconceptions, if you will, that stands in the way of, of, of such large gifts, of, of making large gifts to to organizations outside the biggest institutions is this thinking around absorptive capacity, right? Like it's irresponsible to give a $10 million gift to a $1 million a year nonprofit because, because they'll go off a cliff in a few years. They don't have the capacity to use it. And this is where endowments, you know, the, the math of endowments is a little bit magical and it almost flips the absorptive capacity problem on its head where it may be true that that there are not many one million dollar a year nonprofits that can absorb a ten million dollar gift and and use it well and scale and 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 backfill the fundraising and all of that. But if you said how many million dollar a year nonprofits are there that could well deploy five hundred thousand dollars a year more in perpetuity, the answer is almost all of right. them, right? And so now all of a sudden, instead of ten million seeming like too much. You might say, well, gosh, a $20 million gift would throw off a million a year. And, and that, and many, many nonprofits mm-hmm. could deploy that well. And, and that's where, um, I think it's sort of just thinking differently about that, both from donors, but also from the nonprofit leaders, you know, having the confidence to say, we can do it. I mean, another misconception that I think limits the nonprofit and donor conversation about this is, is there's a sense that so many of these social problems should be things we aspire to solve versus work on forever. And, you know, Bridgespan and has, has been in this work for, for a few decades and, you know, I've been in it for a long time. And, right. you know, we don't see problems getting sort of checked off the problem board, you know, every year and that, the, and that you know, our real scarcity is, is like there's no problems left. You know, unfortunately, all of these tough problems right. are multi-decade problems. Problem board. I love that concept of a problem board. That sounds like the scariest (laughs) board of all time, but very important to solve all those for sure. (laughs) Wow. Well, so I guess, you know, in that sense, if you were, you know, our our listeners tend to be of uh, grant makers and and folks that have either, you know, endowments that they're, you know, holding, you know, and structuring grants and and, and distributions for, but you know, it varies. What I'm curious to get is if there is one thing that you would ask of this audience, um, the, you know, thing that you think could kind of get them started, what would you sort of beckon them into saying, you know, if you could think this way or do this thing or move forward, what do you think would really be an impactful, you know, action that they could take today? Have a conversation with your leadership team about what portion of your grant making, what slice of your portfolio ought to be endowments. And it's not going to be 100%. But similarly, it shouldn't be 0%. And that's where it is for a lot of of the grant-making to social change organizations, to Black-led organizations. And say, have a conversation with your management team about what percent of the portfolio should be that. Think of it like an asset class. And then think about, you know, what are the characteristics of a nonprofit 
for which that's the right move. And it's probably a nonprofit that is deeply trusted in community, has some years under its belt, but is also working on problems that you know are going to be around for decades and, and, and where flexibility and security, knowing that, that, that work can be done and invested in for multi years matters the most. And I'm almost positive that every philanthropy will have a subset of grantees, a set of organizations they're contemplating to become grantees for whom that is the right move. And it's just about having the conversation, a portfolio-oriented conversation about that asset class. And, um, and that's what I would ask. Is there a question that you wish I had asked you? I mean, the only one I would ask is, is like, is do donors really want to give away more money? And, and right. because at a very fundamental level, like that's the starting point of this philanthropy conversation, right? Like, do donors actually desire to give away more money? And if you look you know, from a U.S. lens, the wealthiest Americans give away a higher percent of their of their money than than other countries, and yet. It's a small percent. We've done some analysis at Bridgespan, which is now a few years old, but but showing, but it shows that sort of the wealthiest, wealthiest donors give away on average 1.2% of their asset, you know, the, the equivalent of their of their wealth per year. And when you look at returns, you know, in the stock market from people in finance and tech that are starting companies, that doesn't even keep up, doesn't isn't even close to keeping up with with their wealth. And and yet at the same time, you have all kinds of folks signing the giving pledge who, who want to give away half or more of their wealth over their lifetimes. And one of the things we found at Bridgespan is that, is that that is sincere. I, 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 we don't think it's cynical, meaning we think it is a, a deeply sincere desire to give away that wealth. And yet for a variety of reasons, it's not happening fast enough to occur. And this is where endowments and the math around endowments can really shift by 10x, by an order of magnitude, the kinds of gifts that can be contemplated. And we actually think could be a big part mm-hmm. of the solution for donors of, of living into their own desire to give away money, but also for nonprofit leaders, particularly those that have not been in the flow of major gifts historically, those working on the toughest social problems, those who are most proximate, often those that are sort of black or BIPOC-led organizations, um, to, to really sort of shift things in a in a, in a, in a near to medium term context. Thank you so much, by the way, for that insight. And I think your question that you posed yourself is actually a wonderful one. So unexpectedly, uh, I, I think that's a really bold question that we need to be asking. Um, as we sort of wrap this up, I am just so grateful for the time that we have. We always do a little thing at the <laughs> very end called rapid fire questions. I'm just going to run through a series of short little things and just say the first thing that comes to your, your mind, it's very easy. Are you no, ready? No, but let's go. <laughs> All right. If you had a million dollars to put towards creating a new endowment right now, what impact would you target? In I would. I, I would target um, uh, groups that are that are that are fostering new social entrepreneurs uh, working on all these problems we've talked about. Echoing Green is one that comes to mind. Although I'll caveat that by saying the head of it is 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 the co-chair of my board, so I I may be biased, but Echoing Green is great. <laughs> So that yeah. would be the one organization who you would, uh, yeah, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> awesome. If you could have dinner with one historical figure 
from all of time that are alive. Uh, that, the first thing that comes to mind right now, sadly, because of what's in the news, is President Zelensky in the Ukraine. I, I mean, amazing, Ooh. amazing Great defender answer. of democracy and civil society. Good answer. I'm liking that one. Uh, if you could snap your fingers and change one thing in philanthropy, what would it be and why? Quadruple the amount of money going to social change organizations because it would it, it would do good and donors would feel very rewarded about it. I love it. Thank you so much, William, today. What a joy to chat with you. Appreciate you joining the podcast, sharing more about your work. Our listeners can learn more about the Bridgespan Group at bridgespan.org. You can listen and download our episodes at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and of course, directly from our website at flux.io. That's F-L-U-X-X dot I-O. 